Welcome to Black Sheep by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Reisitz. This podcast celebrates those that don't follow the flock. Across the series, I'll be having conversations with some of the world's most notorious black sheep. We'll hear their stories told through the rules they've broken. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Our guest this week recently wrote about the psychological effects of coronavirus in The Guardian. Here's an extract. Freud said, the aim of psychoanalysis is to turn hysteria into ordinary human unhappiness. That is an accomplishment for an individual and for a society. We cannot escape unhappiness. It is constitutive of being human, just as our creativity, courage, ambition, attachment and love. Let's embrace the complexity of what it means to be human in this time of sorrow, as we think and feel our way to come out of this wiser, humbler and more connected. We'll put a link to this article in our show notes. So that was Susie Orbach, the original body positive activist and the woman who began the anti-diet revolution. Psychotherapist, author, social critic and our black sheep this week. The New York Times wrote of her, Aside from Sigmund Freud, Susie is probably the most famous psychotherapist to have ever set up couch in Britain. Princess Diana was famously one of her patients. In her first book, Fat as a Feminist Issue, Susie pulled out a giant magnifying glass on society's entrenched belief that fat equals bad and thin equals good. The commercialisation of girls' bodies and the history of women's disordered eating. Alongside this, she's disrupted preconceptions of the analysis room. In her book, which got made into a celebrated radio series, In Therapy, she offered a raw insight into the patient therapy dynamic. Beyond her therapeutic work and writing, Susie is also an ardent activist. She's a co-originator of the Dove Campaign for Real Beauty and has been involved with Extinction Rebellion since its inception. We recorded this interview pre-COVID, pre-lockdown, pre-the world changing. Thank you so much for coming, Susie. It is such an honour to have you as our Black Sheep guest today. Before we venture into your broken rules, um, I'd like to know if you think of yourself as a black sheep. I don't really anymore. Isn't that funny? I, I definitely was a black sheep both in school and as a misfit, as a both a child and early adolescent. But... When I was 21, I went to New York mm. because I was so excited about... There was university strikes, there was the Vietnam War, there was all of the politics around um, anti-racism, and suddenly I kind of fitted in mm. because there was this category of youth all on the streets. Now, I think we have that category here, but we didn't when I when I was younger mm. and we didn't have categories of ethnicity I mean I'm, yeah. we're recording this in Soho and just walking past every shop front with every possible food and every form of excitement mm. about palate and culture that just wasn't available when I grew up so yes black sheep is really what I felt <laughs> and as a therapist 
do you ever, I don't know, have a voice in your head that says, oh, I'm being black sheep-like in my approach to my client or not really? I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't even think it was transgressive because I I think what happened for me and, and my generation of thinkers and theorists mm. is that we try to rewrite the rules of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We're not that mm. stupid. We were drawn to it because it had something really profound. But wanting to start from the point of view of the person that we're seeing in therapy being an equal partner in the endeavor to discover who they are and what and help them with their difficulties so that's not black sheepish but it is changing the terms of psychoanalysis because before before you were the surgeon right you were operating on the person you now that was beginning to shift post world war 2 there were Ideas and of course there are ideas in early Freud and Jung mm. about the the therapist being also a receiver of um, unconscious messages which need to be understood, i.e. Di- indirect communication rather than the master who knows. But mm. it didn't really explode until uh, this the late seventies, eighties, nineties, and is still. Uh, it hasn't reached into all psychoanalysis where there's still a very sort of rigid part to it which so I don't think I feel like black sheep but I do feel gosh we really opened up this field Mm. and as a therapist do you sometimes feel this is so my view so please tell me that I'm wrong but do you sometimes feel that you are seeing black sheep turning up (laughs) and you're trying to help them fit in into I don't, a system. No, that... I don't, I don't, yeah, that's a really sweet way to put it. But <laughs> I don't think I do see that. I see, I have enormous affection and um, interest in everybody that I see. And I see the price that they've paid for the difficulties or their endeavours or their ways of wanting to belong and connect, mm. but without disavowing who they are and their individuality. And yes, of course, there are enormous changes that go on which make it more possible for you to connect with others and maybe take off some of the rough edges. Yeah. But I don't think... And if I was going to use the term black sheep, well, then we're all bloody black sheep. Yeah. And what's, you know, that's not something that I would want to... It's not something I would want to be rid of, frankly. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm glad to hear your answer. Um, Susie, will you kick us off, please, and tell us the first rule that you have broken? Well, I suppose most profoundly and in an ordinary way, too, um, I haven't kept a stiff upper lip. I went to a school in which it was very clear that you had to keep a stiff upper lip and a stiff upper body and you had your uniform just so Mm. and you didn't ask questions and you certainly didn't contest anything and you certainly didn't have a feeling about anything. Um, And I never really understood that. I think two different reasons. One, I came from a very shouty Jewish family. I can relate to that. It wasn't particularly emotional in a funny kind Mm. of way. Um, But I was interested in upset and pain and angst and alienation and I don't think I would have used words like sorrow or yeah. at that age but that meant that I was really interested in reading the agony arts um, or wanting to talk to my friends about 
what we actually felt and what you feel is about not talk is is completely breaking the rule of this the stiff upper lip and were you born into a home although you say they're loud um where underneath that loudness they weren't really saying anything well i think that's how i've understood it uh there was a lot of argument but it wasn't a coherent logical argument it was always an argument with the world yeah the radio um each other yeah um but but i kind of knew there were two sides and you were on one side or the other but that did not include the emotional i mean i i knew people were uptight emotionally mm. i didn't know that we weren't emotional even because the shouty makes it look as though you're yeah. emotional whereas i realize that's just as much a protection against emotion as <laughs> uh well it's a different form of stiff upper lip isn't it it's expulsive rather than um uptight yeah and when you try to or or maybe you didn't did you try to break down that stiffness well, at of course home or at in my, school. Uh, of course uh, well in both places but I, I remember being very unhappy when i was moved schools and saying i'm really unhappy i really hate it here no you don't right no you don't mm. I, so that's a closing down and and at school i just remember being scolded all the time and being in the headmistress's office and being told that really i could be doing so much better all the time So it sounds like it would have been very easy or you you could have taken the easier path uh, which was to then develop a stiff upper lip but what let you or what led you to carry on exploring that area that perhaps wasn't I don't even think I had a word for it then I don't think right. it was I don't think it was conscious mm. I don't think it was thoughtful I just think I was hurt and I was cross and I remember walking down the street as a kid and the builders would say cheer up love you know never going to happen and i said but it already has without even knowing what i <laughs> meant by yeah. that yeah so i don't think it was in any sense purposeful i just think my distress was it that's too strong a word but my was was just so bloody uncomfortable i didn't know what else to do so where did it take you after school that feeling Well I think it took me into a certain amount of political activity at university and then I ended up in the wrong course and then um it I I went to the states as I said I I dropped out of of British University and went to the states because I was really drawn to the notion which was absolutely um novel to me which was that the personal is political now most people ascribe that to the women's liberation movement and to feminism but in fact it came out of something called the new left the mm-hmm. port huron statement which was in the mid 60s and i didn't really know what that meant the personal is political but once i got my head around it it meant so many things to me that mm-hmm. the way we're constructed who we are the way our politics are constructed has both an impact on us and we have an impact on it. So it was a very much in a way the title of the very first book that I wrote with Louise Eichenbaum, my very dear friend and person that I founded the Women's Therapy Center was outside in inside out was the understanding that we are made mm. in ways that relate to what is the social structure and the familial structure, but we then also make that because our personal experience allows us to impact or not impact on what's around us. And so from that how did you then connect it with going into therapy? Well I was really interested in 
uh, issues of gender, which I think we're going to come on to yes. in a minute, and women's studies. But the, the key issue that interested me, because I'd under, I understood, I'd thought a lot about the history of women, whether it was in film or in mm. um, industrial life or in the Russian Revolution, etc., etc. But I was very interested in if there was the potential for equality, mm. what was it? What were the concrete structures inside of our hearts, our psyches, our minds mm. that stopped us taking it up? What were we so damn afraid of? And actually, there was really only one discipline. You can un answer that sociologically. You can answer it economically. But in order to address the individual personal subject as well as us as a group you kind of need the open thinking of psychoanalysis mm. which and a psychoanalysis that doesn't have a set of answers pre-formulated answers you know this is not an oedipus complex yeah. so like let's figure out what this is but that would allow you to talk or listen and listen profoundly to what we were trying to understand so was that then in a bid for social change? Were you interested yes, in I was social much, change I, I was rather very, than the individual? I was very... Well, I think because I love this notion of the personal as political, mm. I, I, and it's not me. I mean, it was the whole cohort, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of people in North America, Latin America, in Britain, in, in Europe, were very interested in that notion. And in fact, you could say that still very current today but yeah. in a different form so I of course I saw it as a political thrust and I also thought that just like other disciplines were being opened up like history became her story as well as mm. his story or economics began to look at well what is the specific contribution of women why don't we count childcare and yeah. labor why don't we count all, all the kinds of things that you could think about. So I was interested in well, what happens if we open up this discipline? Not only will it be a tool for social change, but it'll be a tool for personal change because personal change will mm. inevitably enable people to connect in a different way. And just thinking about your upbringing, um, when you told your parents that you were going to go into therapy, mm. how, what was their reaction considering the kind of stiff upper lip mentality that you were brought up with? Well, I don't think I did say this is what I'm going to do it was a drift yeah and I do remember my father having a heart attack and telling me that the he was talking to the nurse in the hospital and he he said to her oh my daughter does what you do and she was a physiotherapist mm. <laughs> and I thought well that was really interesting yeah. there was something too dangerous about the psychotherapy <laughs> bit. and then I remember another very funny occasion in which Louise and, and my mother were together and the Women's Therapy Centre had been a huge uh, success in mm. the sense of opening up the whole notion of, of what we were doing to a wider public. And uh, my mother said to Louise's mother, well, what exactly, well, Louise's mother said to my mother, what exactly is it that girls do? And my mother said, I think she runs slimming classes. <gasps> and, I thought, no! and I thought, well, that's really quite interesting because um, from her perspective, that would have been a real diminution class-wise yeah having been a girl who's who's who had aspirant middle-class parents despite despite my dad having left school at 13 mm. so and being a leftist mm. i think it was quite a funny thing because 
it couldn't be further from the truth. How interesting. And just thinking about having a stiff upper lip within therapy, and this shows that I'm a total novice in terms of how, how it kind of how you have to be as a therapist. Do you sometimes feel like you have to retain a stiff upper lip? No, I don't. I I feel very much there's a real difference between thinking and containing and reflecting on what I'm experiencing in the consulting room. But I don't think you'd find me Obviously, I don't do very much talking, mm. but I don't think you'd find my persona that different. I, I think there's a continuity mm. between the capacity to have, to reflect and hold on to what you're thinking and feeling, which is not stiff upper lip. It's, it's thoughtful, I think. And then when you're out of that room, yeah. I'm wondering whether you have to have, and, and maybe I'm kind of misusing the phrase stiff upper lip now, but a kind of resilience in terms of connecting with your clients outside of the room. But you don't usually connect with them outside of the room. I don't mean in, like, real life. I mean in your mind, thinking about them, how they affect you. No, no, I think that's absolutely where you don't have a, right. a, a stiff upper lip. I mean, it would be completely the opposite, in fact. It would be thinking about... Or you might not get to the thinking. You might feel a whole set of complex feelings you don't understand and you've then got to mm. question yourself wonder what the what, wonder why that's where's that feeling coming from is it a feeling that they are transmitting to you is it a feeling they can't feel is it your identification no in that space it's, it's probably a freer wow um, and is that then imbued in the next session and the session after that? It might be, but it might just be a very silent interpretation to myself of events, or it might be something I would have to discuss with a colleague if I if I was troubled by something, or it might be something I might write in my notes mm. as a, as a way of leaving something and letting it be metabolised, if you like, and then moving on to something that was because when you approach. The next session, you need to be there for what the person's mm. coming in with. You're not. It's not. It's not a lesson at school where you've got to transmit. This is what happened in 1868. I mean, yeah. that's not what you're doing. So, does that mean, as a consequence of being with different clients over the years, it has taught thing, taught you things about yourself? Yes, I think it's. I think the big secret about therapy is that it's endlessly bloody fascinating to yourself. <laughs> yeah, because not only do you have these wonderfully various people that you see across the age range mm. and across backgrounds but they provoke different things in you which you have which stimulate you in different ways and so you're always you're always have an ear and an eye and a heart to what you're feeling and experiencing and I bet you get this question all the time so I'm really sorry to ask you again but does that what about when you step out of that room into the life. real world into life are you do, do you have that voice of analysis going on at the no, same no don't. no not at all I, I mean I'll go and chop some some onions and yeah I know I, I does that mean that I don't have an emotional ear of course I have an yeah. emotional ear that's that's integrated into who I am I mm. also have a fighting ear yeah I mean yeah so I don't but if I'm sitting in a, a normal social conversation of course therapists talk in a particular kind of way I don't mean with jargon but mm. with an awareness of many different layers but no I don't I don't know I don't think you'd have to ask people who 
who experienced me socially. I can't answer yeah, that for you. Yeah, I know, it's yeah. an unfair question. Um, okay, Susie, will you uh, tell me, please, the second rule that you have broken? Well, it's a kind of rule that was sort of in my family, but not quite, but was certainly societal and definitely at school. It was finish what's on your plate. And uh, in my family, um, my mother, despite working, and I can have enormous empathy for her now, mm. would make different meals for all of us because we were all had our particular proclivities, which is just insane, mm. actually, if I think about that. Um, my father, if I wouldn't finish my plate, would say, and I'd I would be giving it given it for breakfast, and if I didn't have it at <laughs> yeah. breakfast, I'd be giving it for lunch. And, I'd, and all the poor starving children in India, and I think, well, wait, what's that got to or China? I think it was when I was a child. What's that got to do with me eating what's on my plate? <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't really a stress at home, but it was a very big issue at school where we were an all girls school. I, I from from seven and a half on, I was, and it was absolutely horrendous then. I don't think it is now. I've been back many times but yeah. it was it was we were learning how to be girls and we were learning how to hold knives and forks and my mother being an American had obviously held the things incredibly the wrong way <laughs> and um, we had to eat everything because it was greedy if you had more on your plate than you could possibly eat and, blah, blah, blah. and I began to think but what is this because what is different about this kind of prompt from your body mm than the prompts of needing to pee yeah. or sneeze. Those are spontaneous prompts which you respond to in the moment and which have a natural endpoint. And yet here I am being told I'm greedy or selfish or not wanting or whatever it was. And not just me, everybody. Mm. And I didn't live in that kind of a household. I mean, my mother had a fridge and it was open. Mm. And there was a relish of food. There was a pleasure associated with it um, and an embracing of it, it, although there were restrictions, but that's another thing. And I, I suppose that I, I broke that rule about finish what's on your plate and don't complain. I actually was always prepared to complain and always very interested in trying to manage food, but like everybody, not like everybody else in my day, at some point, I decided that I should do exactly what my mum did, which was when I was about 12 and developing mm. and wanting to be a grown-up, I should go on a diet yeah. because that's what my mum did and that was obviously the thing you did. So I learned how to cut out foods and then I discovered I binged on them. Mm. Now, it's nothing compared to what constitutes normal eating today. Yeah. But it, in time, made me think about the whole mad nonsense of our relationship to food. And this is a time when food was probably still real food. It wasn't in fully adulterated and it wasn't frozen or pre... Uh, it wasn't... It, it was food. Yeah. Obviously, you've since gone on and become incredibly... or, or written incredibly re revelatory books and spoken in so many different areas about the body and food. Do you think that it does come from when you are a child, like when you're at school and you are given what's on your plate, you have to eat what's on your well, plate? Well, I think that's one piece, but no, actually, I don't think that anymore. I think it's much earlier. I think now that we've managed to 
assault not just all women about mm. their bodies mm. and about and the imagery and we've managed to have the worst form of a national obesity campaign possible mm -hmm. so that everybody is uptight men women whatever categories all uptight teachers parents um, I think there's so much anxiety in the early feeding situation so that mums are themselves preoccupied and preoccupied with getting their pre-pregnancy body back as yeah. though pregnancy was not the an enormous event that has a profound as though you didn't grow this baby mm. and that you're now feeding this baby from your body which is an extraordinary thing no instead we know we we, we have pictures of celebrities who are back in their pre-pregnancy mm. bodies a few a few weeks later and talking about how they've been running or and it's so damaging so that I don't think it happens at adolescence or at seven. I think it happens, it's much more serious now. It's woven into the fabric mm. of anxious relationship to food and anxious relationship to bodies. When you wrote fat is a feminist issue. Yeah, let's call it Fifi because it's otherwise such a mouthful. Okay. Say it again. Fifi. Fifi, I love that. When you wrote Fifi, uh, you said... Well, you said in retrospect, I naively hoped my book would change the world. Well, of course. One's a naive person when one's very young. That's a great black sheep comment, but, but how did you think that that book would change the world and how are you disappointed as well, a Well, the thing consequence? is, I wrote this book. So I suppose I had the thought and I started all these uh, self-help groups based on Fifi and, mm. and then went on to write Fifi 2 which is now incorporated into Fifi and then there was a theatre company Spare Tie Theatre Company who went all around the country, it was just a community theatre company and they went all around with provocative little musicals mm. and uh, set up loads of self-help groups so I suppose I felt and I talked to doctors and I talked to educationalists and I suppose I naively thought right, this is a, such a good idea that people could eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full, even though that's a very difficult idea. Mm. When you've destabilized eating, it's nevertheless a very simple idea. And if you can then look at the reasons you eat when you're not physically hungry and what, what other kinds of sources of comfort or soothing are you looking for mm. or what it, what is or turning upside down the ideas of fat and thin, that maybe thin isn't wonderful, maybe fat has important psychological meanings. That's all of what's in Fifi. Mm. I thought, oh gosh, well, I think this is quite a, a, a contribution to thinking about bodies and mm. thinking about uh, food and eating. So yeah, of course I was disappointed. I mean, I'm, I'm not just disappointed, I'm bloody heartbroken yeah. uh, about the kind of distress that visits little girls and increasingly little boys about their bodies that they're already posing for camera at three four and five younger really I've got a little niece who's two and she can she understands what a selfie is for sure yeah I mean it's but it's the it, it's so hurtful to look at because it isn't charming actually mm. and the fact that it's in the in the family and in the schools and in the culture is is so dismaying and it, and it's I, I suppose the other thing to be saying about it is that the commercial forces are just phenomenal so we don't think of the beauty in the food industries um, or the fashion industries as being we don't think let's let's take the ones specifically we don't think of fashion as being 
a huge industry, but in fact, the richest man in in Europe mm. is the guy who started Zara, mm-hmm. and the richest woman owns thirty percent of L'Oréal. Yeah. And then there's the food industry, which, apart from what the hell it's doing to our planet, uh, is all is also a huge industry. Now, the, so they have real interest mm-hmm. in destabilizing people's bodies. It may not be conscious, although I think it is, because when you create foods that just have a bliss point and have absolutely nothing else going on in them, yeah. you know that there's something up that's driven by commercial interests and not by the welfare of others. How do you maintain hope, or do you have hope? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's a piece of my personality. It, it sits next to despair. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. I was um, rereading in preparation for today, you've got a updated edition of Bodies, and it just struck me, perhaps for the first time, that, of course, it's got more complicated, but it's also, it's got more complicated because we can now... Our body isn't fact anymore. It can be it augmented. It is and Exactly. Our, our bodies are fiction. I mean, I think the argument in in bodies is that bodies are made and they're made in historical time. And the bodies that we appropriate or mm. that we're given relate to the cultural moment. And our cultural moment is one in which we're already inviting children of six to have cosmetic surgery games Mm. there there are apps which they can play with which preps them for the fact that their bodies aren't just malleable because they grow but they're malleable because we can actually transform them Mm. and so it is it's a very very difficult moment and and to be a woman who's lived through this period and to, to have not changed my body except is a bit odd frankly I know yeah. I mean, I'm just part of a whole cohort of my mates who haven't, but, but a lot of people of my age really have. And, and it just makes me feel that the idea of body acceptance is just dissolving because we can continue to change in any way that we like. I, I, I we find can that and really we can't hard to because understand. We, we can and we can't because if you sit opposite people in a consulting room... Mm you're looking at them and you can see that something's not quite right when they've had interventions. Right. Their body just doesn't sit quite right. The face. I'm talking about the face because I can't see the rest of the body. But you can always tell. You don't know what's off, but something's off. Yeah. And when right? you... and the emo- you know, one of the things that's really preoccupied me about 10 years ago was the was the fact that Botox mums were depriving their babies of the opportunity of understanding emotional mm. exchange because if your face doesn't move your baby can't absorb yeah what an emotion is and and how do babies learn they learn by having their feelings both mirrored back to them but also if you like soothed in that mirroring mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if you've got a plasticized face or a botoxed eyes and face and cheeks it's quite hard for that the subtle nuance of emotional exchange to be transmitted and when you're with people in clinic considering as you said the outside world is getting more and more scary mm-hmm. in regards to this subject how do you find or how do you help them find a sense of acceptance well, I don't think you can find a sense of acceptance that excludes what's going on in the mm. culture. And I think it, 
was very much easier many years ago because there was a very strong feminist movement and this could become part of banding together and saying we're not tolerating this mm. and although there is a, a feminist movement again it it hasn't really had that focus and body acceptance is kind of a do you mean as the movement kind of body positivity yeah. yeah is a kind of i understand the impulse but it's kind of anemic compared to what you really what's really required which is a full a full-scale onslaught on these industries mm. that are stealing children's childhoods and messing up not just women now but yeah. men too yeah as you know i had an eating disorder and i think the thing that really helped me move forward was connecting it as you say to a political mindset and when you recognize it's political then it's not about you anymore and it well it isn't it isn't right it, yeah it's, it is about you but it's you in a solidarity with something and i think that's very important mm. and i guess that goes back to what you were saying in your first rule that the personal is the political yeah yeah Let's move on, although I could talk about this all day with you, uh, to your third and final rule, Susie, that you have broken. Right, I think I think I grew up lo- that I was supposed to be ladylike, which is quite... F- I mean, now it's just a notion that... I guess we have it now because we have six inch heels and Mm. fingernails and all of that thing. But it was a different kind of notion. It was a very sort of constrained notion and it was a a notion of caring for others all the time and thinking Mm. about their needs. The the latter I don't wish to give up, but I would also like to insert women's needs and one's own needs in those. But breaking that rule, I suppose, was daring to be transgressive in relation to almost everything whether it was what constituted therapy how you might set up things how you dare to be brazen in relation to things how you can take risks when without knowing everything that there is that will come about so as a therapist how have you broken that rule well it's an interesting question I don't know how I, I I don't know how I've not broken the rule if I could put it mm, that way. Mm. Um, I think we talked at the beginning a bit about how I don't see myself as a surgeon. I see myself as on the side of the person, which doesn't mean being on this on this person or people I'm seeing, which doesn't mean. Uh, forgiving everything it means letting them see the power of their own uh difficulties Mm -hmm. and what what they have and what they can engage with i actually think the way that you've answered those questions will lead us perfectly into the one rule that you will never break Yes, I think I think the the one rule I'd never break. I hope so. I hope this will be like okay, tap me on the shoulder and that's it for me. If I break it, is I'm really want to remain curious. I don't actually. It's not a want. I do remain curious. Mm. 
And I find myself more and more interested in things that I knew nothing about and wish I had a whole lot of time to understand and unpick and explore different ideas or different cultural stories. And I think whether I'm in therapy or I'm thinking about political structures or I'm thinking about why we do the things we do or why other cultures do the things they do, curiosity and second and third and fourth times of questioning things are really interesting to me. And I don't think I can break that. As much as you thrive off your curiosity, yeah. do you ever just want to stop being curious for like an hour? I think I am. <laughs> I think I do. I do I, no, I think I'd go mad if I was... No, I mean, I can veg out for yeah. goodness sake. I mean, I can... You know, I spend quite a lot of time chopping vegetables and and fish or whatever it is I'm eating because, mm. and I'm sure that is a different form. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm of of engaging with the ordinary in a in a pleasurable way. That's not I'm not I'm not a madly manic mm. person mm. at all. Actually, mm. I've got high energy, but I'm my curiosity is not disabling. I don't think. And with your curiosity, where do you want to go next? I don't know. <laughs> Look, I'm at a phase in my life where we're, where my, my friend, my some of my dearest friends and I are much older and we're thinking about what that means. But it's quite hard when we still feel vibrant to mm. understand what that's about. I don't, I don't think I can answer that question. That's okay. Maybe that's a perfect place to end. Okay. Thank you so much, Susie. I'd actually like to end with something I read last night and I now want to hold on to. And if I record it, then it means I can listen to it again. Okay. You said, we need more rage, more refusal, more love. And I think that's a wonderful summary, really, of everything you've spoken about with me today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.